Hey, it's Andrew, and welcome back to Season 3 of Network Disrupted, where I, along with some very smart guests, help fellow technology leaders trade notes on navigating disruption in our space. This season, I've set a goal of exploring the issue of enterprise cloud adoption from as many angles as I can. Today, I'm joined by Matt McComas, who is the VP of DevOps, DevSecOps, CICD, Infrastructure's Code, and Kubernetes for GM Financial. He started there on the infrastructure ops side years ago when DevOps as a concept was nascent. He saw the dysfunction of the traditional way their teams were structured and all the handoffs and the waste and inefficiencies and started testing some hypotheses around how to streamline that. Long story short, he's still there today with some really sound lessons to share. In this episode, we talk about the evolution of automation, how to measure success of that. We talk about his company's cloud adoption journey why it's intentionally slow, and we talk about the challenge of integrating greenfield and brownfield environments. What I appreciate the most about Matt is his refreshingly honest admission of what's still a challenge for him, because he's definitely not alone. So let's get into it. And if you have a moment, please don't forget to leave a review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen to these. The feedback is always so helpful, and you'll be helping more people like you discover the show. Maybe you can give me a sense of the complexity. We love the pilot proof concept approach. It influences everything. It influences the human experience. There were several failures along the way. We want to be early adopter customers. You are handling sensitive information. Network disrupted. So welcome, Matt, and thank you so much for joining me. Why don't you uh, maybe start by giving us an idea of what you're responsible for at GM Financial and, and what your team actually works on. Yeah, thanks, Andrew, for uh, the opportunity. Happy to be here. Uh, so team that I have at GM Financial is responsible for DevOps engineering, and that's primarily composed of pipeline automation uh, and infrastructure as code. Uh, we do a lot of automation, sort of general purpose process automation as well. So the team was kind of born as an automation team from the beginning. Uh, and really it's sort of uh, uh, branched out into these other areas as the years have gone on. And you, you've been at, at GM Financial for quite some time. So what what do you think sort of prepared you for this role or you know, why were you excited about this opportunity? So we were trying to solve problems uh, that we actually saw, you know, real world issues every single day. We were, you know, in the trenches, so to speak, in terms of uh, managing and supporting the legacy platform. And these were, you know, environments that were critical to the business, but also really difficult to manage, very fragile, uh, and everything was very manual. So uh, the team that we have now was really born out of a need to solve some of those problems. So that's that's literally why we're here. And honestly, what gets me up in the morning every day, just solving those kinds of problems. Right. Yeah. You know, when you, when you think about DevOps and a lot of the tool chains available today and a lot of the capabilities available today, you know, you start with the tutorial or learning something and always starts greenfield, which is, which is way easier to deal with than, than existing stuff. Right. I mean, you know, you're, you're an enterprise that's been around for quite some time and obviously there's, there's a tons of stuff. There must've been some interesting strategies to try to drive DevOps around existing infrastructure. And I'm assuming also, you know, drive more modern infrastructures in in cloud. Yeah, it certainly was. One of the interesting things about what you just said is that it reminds me of, of one of our early lessons learned, which is that a lot of the awesomeness that you get out of DevOps uh, and automation really requires the infrastructure and architecture to support it. And so, you know, it's interesting early in our journey, you know, we were trying so hard to do so many things 
and it just seemed like we were always kind of swimming upstream. Uh, and it was always a challenge. It's, it's, it's always a challenge in general, but it was excessively challenging. And, and really what we learned along the way is you have to kind of think about the whole sort of system itself, the architecture, uh, the infrastructure, everything needs to be supportive of, of the DevOps activity that we're trying to initiate. And so, yeah, uh, more recently in the last year or two, you know, finally the organizations kind of began to catch up in terms of understanding that. And so I think that's kind of a key element of where we're at in our journey right now, which is a lot of you know, platform and service re-architecture work uh, to kind of change the core of the business. I'm, I'm assuming examples are things like, you know, lack of APIs or lack of certain telemetry or, I know, are there a couple of examples of, you know, existing infrastructure architecture and where, you know, that, that sort of drives the difficulty of, of, of automation? Yeah, so it's just basically like everything you said is just spot on. You know, uh, we, we came from a world that was not at all API driven. It was very legacy in approach. Uh, a lot of SOAP type, you know, calls and things like that in the infrastructure and, and nothing really had an API. Uh, and so now we're moving into a world in which we're lever- leveraging APIs all the time. You know, we're leveraging uh, APIM and Azure and and so everything we have really is is uh, something you can interact with and enter an API and write you know automation or code around. So it's 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 such a different world from where we were. But yeah, you're spot on. Were there process issues too? I, I always remember this one case with uh, with one of my customers where we implement an automation to do rapid changes to whatever. It doesn't really matter. And everything went through their QA processes and everything looked like it was working right and they went ready to launch it. And somebody came in and said, can't do that because those sorts of changes require this process. And that process included like, you know, what's the back out if it doesn't work and who's approving and stuff like that. So they actually had to go back and re-engineer processes to allow for automation. Did, Did you run into process issues too? Oh yeah, so there's lots, lots and lots of that, uh, and, and honestly, uh, a great example of that is you know early in our journey, uh, we went down this path of automating server builds and all of the dependencies around server builds. So network dependencies, firewall, DNS, all the components around setting a server up, we automated, and we had a pretty good system working and still do. But one of the things we noticed is that in spite of the fact that we were able to take you know, basically a, a two to three week process of manual server build and carve it down to about, uh, you know, maybe an hour or two. We still had, you know, end to end about a three week server provisioning process. And, and what we found is that all the processes out in the front that sort of uh, that are prerequisites to even starting the server build process uh, were the things that, that became the impediment. And so really what it you know, the real lesson learned for us there was that, you know, to your point, you have, it's not just about the automation. You know, they, they say DevOps is people, process, and technology. I find, honestly, that uh, the, the technology side is the easiest part to do, uh, which is the, you know, tool and, and automation implementation side. Right. Process is, is more difficult because it really requires a lot of humility because a lot of people are married to the process, especially people that have been around a while. Yeah. Uh, and, and they've always done it that way. And so and, and many people kind of get stuck in this rut where they think that process can't change. Yep. 
when in reality there isn't really a process that can't be changed. And a lot of times if you just kind of, you know, step back and look at it and start asking why you're doing things the way you are, you find, well, it's because we were trying to compensate for a mistake or some problem that happened, you know, years ago yeah. that nobody really knows about anymore. Right. Yeah, one hundred percent. I was about to say, is that because, you know, a lot of these processes become heavyweight because of some failure seven years ago where yeah. you know somebody forgot to do X or whatever the case might be, and this failed. So therefore, there's this step in the process. And people often don't remember what actually happened. But you know, something I, I talk about a lot is, well, the requirements have changed. You know, like you're driving this automation. So ultimately, and I'll make an assumption, you can make lots of small changes. And when you're making lots of small changes, that can be automatically, um, hopefully, you know, uh, asserted that they were done correctly and, and, and backed out if necessary. You know, the, the, the risk profile is way different than making some, you know, change window, tons of stuff gets thrown in, everybody, you know, and so the requirements are also different. And so that, that should create a process change. But yeah, people hold on to that five years ago, you know, major outage. We can't, we can't do that again without doing this first. Absolutely. Yeah, organizational memory. How do you work through that process issue? That's a, that's a great question. It, it's obviously very difficult to do that, to work through the process issues. You have to, like I said, you know, have some humility and kind of step back and take a look at it. One of the things that's true as well is that process is really a risk management activity. You know, it's, it's something that was implemented to mitigate you know, a past problem, as you mentioned. In theory, as you get better at the automation side, the automation builds sort of safety into the processes you, you know, you're trying to implement. And, you know, what you should be able to do is demonstrate that you're able to achieve that safety uh, and risk management through the automation and check all the boxes. And, and that right there can become really sort of a fundamental page turner in terms of process. And I'll give you a great example. We recently have implemented automated change management for some of the things that we do. Uh, and, and we're a ServiceNow shop, as so many are. And the change management process in ServiceNow is kind of following traditional ITIL processes and things like that. And that team, you know, tends to be very sort of uh, rule-oriented, uh, very structured and prescriptive in their approach. And so they were naturally skeptical when we approached them and said, hey, listen, we can automate everything around this. And then demonstrate that uh, the change was successful and that we met all the requirements. And there's no need for us to go through this manual process. We can just, you know, automate it all. And they were, they were very skeptical. Uh, but we, we, you know, we did a pilot. We demonstrated it to them. And we, we won some converts. Uh, we built a little bit of confidence. We did a little bit more. We built some more confidence. And then we got to the point in which, you know, even the people that didn't want to change originally now we're at a point where they're like, why can't we change? You know, you, you guys have demonstrated this meets all the requirements. In fact, it's even better because now we have traceability. Uh, in the manual change world, what was happening is if a change failed, people could fudge the system uh, and they could re-implement their change. You know, maybe it wasn't always very accurate. Maybe you, maybe you had a successful change that really wasn't successful. If you're really looking at it, maybe it's successful because you retried it five times. But because the change process was manual, uh, that was hidden and, and, and invisible, all that work, all that extra effort. But whenever you have all this chain together and it's automated and it's traceable, now if you have a true change failure, you can't really hide it. So it's better from a change management standpoint. It's better when you're tracking 
things like MTTR uh, and some of the core DevOps metrics because now you have a change metric that's truly accurate. It's truly reflective of what happened because the people aren't involved. Instead, it's the automation that's doing the work. So that was a, a success story and a great example of how we changed process. Yeah, no, that's good. And it always helps by proving some success along the way. But I really like what you said about, you know, demonstrating the success of the change. I think too many people think about automation as calling APIs versus successfully making changes, <laughs> you know, and, and those are yeah. two very different things, you know, exactly. But, you know, and, and I think a lot of the lessons learned in the past, even the five year ago problem, like we made this change and somebody forgot to update the firewall or the load balancer. So now those teams need to be available for a change window and, and you need to coordinate change windows with those guys, those sorts of rules from the past. Also, you can demonstrate how you can, you can automate around, right? Because now you're doing automation. So if you know, there's a fault where, uh, you know, firewall rule isn't changed as well, this isn't going to work, then go either change the firewall rule or at least assert in the automation process that it's changed, you know? So Mm -hmm. I think people think also historically about change around a single system and worry about the, you know, the broader impact as opposed to automation not being about changing a DNS record, it's about deploying a provisioning a server, you know, And, Mm -hmm. and everything involved in that, which is good. Yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, obviously it, it's I'm not surprised to hear your ServiceNow user and ServiceNow is, you know, has done a really good job of penetrating enterprises. It's interesting from my perspective to see different companies and, and how much they're driving ServiceNow to automate versus as a next generation ITIL, ITSM system to port processes of old, you know, and move from Remedy mm-hmm. to ServiceNow versus as part of a broader automation strategy. Yeah. One of the problems lots of enterprises have in driving automation strategies is not having a source of truth to automate against. You know, like if you don't know the current state accurately, then oftentimes it's difficult to automate. Did, did you run into any of those sorts of issues? Yeah, that's a continuing problem, I think. You know, for example, we'll just take configuration management, for example, and, and, and Chef. We happen to be a Chef shop. Chef is an awesome platform and an awesome tool and it does a good job, but it's difficult to implement, you know, in brownfield server fleets, for example, where you have many hundreds and thousands of servers and you don't really have a lot of, in, in the system, chef system doesn't know much about those servers and you don't even have really good, a really good CMDB, if you will, uh, around those servers as well. So it's, it's, you know, it's very unknown. You almost have to, it's really difficult in a brownfield enterprise to implement some types of automation because you almost have to redeploy everything right. to really get it right. Uh, and and it, it, it's easy if it's greenfield uh, because you're starting from scratch. Uh, but again, yeah, um, to your point, if you're, if you're going out there and trying to automate things that are already there, then you're not going to have a lot of information on them most likely. And, and uh, it's, it's challenging for sure. Yeah, yeah, because Chef's going to try to assert some new desired state. But if the old state isn't known and why that's the old state, you know, there's some manual workaround on this server because of some, you know, some static route was added because of some issue that nobody remembers and easy to have that removed if, if you don't know why it was there in the first place. I, I think that's a, that's an ongoing challenge. So that, that's the Brownfield side. You, got, you guys are pushing hard. You mentioned Azure, so I'm assuming that you're pushing into Azure as well. 
Yes, sir. And so, and that's all, that's all Greenfield. You know, this organization, I, I think very wisely made a commitment to largely avoid a lift and shift approach to cloud adoption. So um, we, we have attached at our cloud efforts to really um, a, an application and platform re-architecture project. So, you know, in essence, we are, instead of moving platforms, we are redeploying them uh, and refactoring them into Azure and then deprecating the old. It's a lot more difficult and time consuming, but it's also a much more sustainable approach. Uh, so we're, we're currently, you know, I think on, a, on a, about a three to four year journey to implement, you know, all of this and really change the heart of the business, all of the kind of core platforms that handle auto finance uh, within GM Financial are, are being pushed in this direction. So very much, you know, part of what we're doing every single day. Yeah, it obviously it's Greenfield versus Brownfield, but it's also... I don't know. Maybe maybe I'm thinking about this the wrong way, but but in in some cases, DevOps became a thing, started to exist. Customers, companies started investing in it, you know, because of this gap between development and operations. You know, and you go into a cloud environment, and in many cases, especially if you've refactored something, the expectation is that the team responsible for developing the software is also automating its deployment and everything else. It's sort of part of the software as opposed to necessarily having another team right with them. Well, maybe differently. Let me suggest this. I'm I'm curious what your what your what your view is. The DevOps team would be more aligned with ops in the on-premises world. In the cloud world, they're way more aligned with development. Is that a naive statement of mine? It's and that's just an observation I've had over time. Probably true, especially uh, in our organization. I think it depends upon how the, the DevOps team kind of evolves over time. It, it, there's some good work out there in the field now on this. I don't know if you're familiar with Team Topologies, which is a, a, a book that's published on this essentially goes through all the different models of how DevOps teams are deployed. But in our case, I think what you're saying is pretty close to accurate. We were very ops-oriented you know, before the cloud. Uh, although I will say that you know we were we were trying to solve problems for software delivery uh, pretty early. We were we were you know deploying pipeline CSD pipeline platforms and trying to automate the server delivery problem. Sorry, the software delivery process. But certainly as we've gotten into the cloud, everything becomes a lot more software developer centered uh, because you know to the point you're making. You know I think we all know the cloud compute model really kind of requires that you think about everything in terms of software delivery. But now you're delivering your infrastructure and your applications in the same or similar pipelines and all, it's all done in code. So yeah, that really requires a shift. Fortunately for us, you know, it wasn't a difficult one because by the time we got to uh, the cloud uh, transformation uh, project, we, we were already two or three years into building a, a DevOps team and skill set. So, you know, we were already kind of heading that direction anyways for us. Uh, but I can see how, you know, it would be challenging uh, if you were not and you were just trying to make that, that leap uh, without any real prep work. Yeah, no, for sure. Because you get into knowledge gap areas too, right? You know, not not anybody in the traditional network can log on to a switch and make changes or call an API call. But, but you know, you open up cloud compute and certainly in a sandbox and until governance is put in place and depending different companies do it different ways, then... 
you know, all of a sudden, somebody who's not necessarily deep knowledge in provisioning networks, whatever the case is, provisioning networks without necessarily understanding the ramifications, which runs into issues sometimes. So I'm assuming your team is sort of multi-domain knowledgeable. Like, what was your philosophy in building the team? That's a good question. So, you know, I think early on, it was difficult to find people who specialize specifically in DevOps itself, you know, and there's just for a long time, there's this been there's been this resistance to have you know a DevOps team by name and even you know people titled DevOps engineers. So we focused early on in finding people who had a lot of good infrastructure ops uh, and IT experience, but also knew how to write scripts, you know, either in PowerShell or Python or or any of the, any of the scripting languages that are common. We wanted people who knew how to interact and manage their day-to-day work through automation. So that, that was kind of the early uh, types of, of traits that we're looking for in people. And then I think also learning agility. Uh, you know, certain people can learn faster than others. So we always were really looking for that as well. You know, to me, if you can learn fast and you can pick up, you know, complex topics quickly, then there's really almost no no limit for you. Uh, but that's that's challenging because I don't know I mean, honestly, I haven't figured out if if that's something you're born with or something you can cultivate, and that's probably a whole debate in and of itself. But yeah, those two things, as we kind of got further along, uh, we actually started hiring people who had a software development background. So and that's what we've done a lot more of in the past two to three years. So it's interesting. It's kind of you know evolved over time, but the net effect of that is we have teams that are pretty well-rounded. Uh, you know, they understand the ops side and the, and the development side. Of course, you're going to have people in those teams that are, are SMEs in certain areas and, and, and not in others. So, you know, everyone kind of complements each other, I think, pretty well. Uh, we got teams that, that have a good mix of, of, of kind of both skills. Yeah, no, I, I think that's important. And, and obviously bringing in software developers um, as well and software development processes because you're developing software. You know, and that your software might have defects and your software needs to be tested. And, you know, at the end of the day, it's, it's simply that more software. How do you think about measuring the success of what you're doing or, you know, any key metrics along the way? I, I think it's often, you know, difficult. I've, I've seen it done different ways. I've read some books about different ways to potentially measure. But, you know, ultimately you're trying to help the business release faster. I'm just Curious how you look at the success of your team. That's a great question, and it's a tough, it's a tough answer, tough thing to answer. Uh, metrics are difficult, it, but it's so vital. And you know, I, I think that organizations really have to focus on data and get good at metrics because I think we really have to measure everything, or as much as we can. But in terms of the success of my team, I kind of look at it in terms of you know how many things have we automated, and specifically how many things have we made self-service so that teams can self-serve. So that's what we've done. And that's kind of been the trend of ours for the last 12 to 18 months. So we, we were actually created a service early last year called uh, pipeline as a service. So it's, it's a, it's, it's a way to self provision your own pipeline. So you know, if you're in a product or development team and you need to see actually pipeline, you go to this portal, you fill in some values and you hit submit and you get a pipeline. 
And the great thing about that is it, it includes all of the compliance and security requirements necessary in order to really, you know, take advantage of it. So it meets our requirements. Anybody can produce a pipeline, but it's producing it the way we need to have it produced to meet GM Financial's requirements is what we truly automated. So, so that's, now look at the success of those kinds of services or, you know, infrastructure self-provisioning kinds of services. You know, how successful are we at producing them and how much are they being used? That, those are kind of the measures I look at, uh, adoption measures. Unfortunately, though, there's also a, a you know, a, a development and product team upskilling side to this. And so what we've learned in the last year or two really is you can create a great service and it can be truly automated and truly self-service and truly innovative. Uh, but it's not worth much if nobody uses it. So you have to not only create such a service, but you have to help people learn how to use it. And so there's very much an adoption side to this uh, as well. So I think it's all about empowering the development teams and producing KPIs and metrics around telling that story. And so, and that's what we're trying to do right now in our organization. And, and it's difficult. It, it really is. Part of that difficulty is something we're all facing right now in the IT industry, which is the skill gap. I think that technology is moving faster than people can keep up with in terms of skill. And you're seeing it, you know, widespread. It's just, it's just endemic. Everyone, everyone's got skills, skill up or upskilling challenges in their teams. And you can't hire people fast enough and you can't pay them enough, it seems like these days to get people who really understand how the tech works. So all that together is quite daunting, but I think, yeah, the metrics piece, critical, and we're, and we're working on it, honestly, right now. It's a constant challenge for us. How do we measure? What's the best way to measure? How do we tell that story? The metrics should actually tell the story, uh, and that's really what it's about. You're trying to tell stories. You're trying to craft the narrative right. that explains where you're at and where you want to go. Yeah. Yeah, and metrics are always dangerous, right? Because you know you, you decide yeah. on the wrong metric, and and uh, you drive people to potentially do the wrong thing in order to meet that specific metric or that specific SLA. And and it it's it's tough to do, oftentimes, in automation because you also want to tie it to business value, you know. And and yeah. uh, you know, oftentimes, you know, that could be around cost, that could be around you know man hours saved, that can be around whatever the case might be. But uh, but but certainly can be tough. The, the skill set issue, for sure, is, is something I see on and on, and and I think um, you nailed it, which is you know technology is changing super rapidly. You know you can decide the best way to deploy A, B, or C on a cloud, or use these services or those services, or use network peering, and then the cloud vendors come up with with transit gateways, or like you know so we have customers on like you know architecture four or five or six of their cloud deployment, and they might iterate quickly because the clouds can provide more capabilities at a rate that is beyond the ability of an enterprise that isn't you know it doesn't have a fleet of people that are are you know well embedded uh, to absorb those changes and figure out what new best practices are it's a tough problem broadly and th this technology is new right so it's not like you're going to go hire a you know 10-year veteran of of um, you know who really who's wise you know they, they've They've been through enough failures and and have tried things in different ways. And you know, my my concern always is in in the face of that challenging environment, new technology, not necessarily an expert around. Then sort of the people might act to solve the problem. It like the the first thing they do that works. Well, that's the answer. 
you know, it might yeah. not be the right answer. It might not be scalable. It's going to bite you later. And so it's, it's a trial and error software development, which any of us veterans know leads to issues downstream because you're not considering much. You're, you're, you're just trying to make something work. Absolutely. Yep. Interesting. And so are you, where are you in the organization? Or do, do you work into the operations team? Do you work into the a line of business, into core IT, like, or what part of IT? And where do you fit? Like I said, early on, we were, you know, we grew up on the ops side. Early last year, they, they kind of pulled us out of the ops. We, so now we, we literally sit between operations uh, and, and the development organization. So it's, it's kind of an interesting place to be. I mean, it's, it's truly in many ways, DevOps because it kind of sits there in the middle. We're certainly in IT, obviously, as well. So the interesting thing about you know our teams and, and kind of how we're, we're continuing to evolve is we're, we're becoming a shared services organization that sort of sits underneath product delivery and, and, and the teams that are sitting in the development org. And so we're, we're sort of foundational teams. I like to say that we build the plumbing that help teams move fast. But yeah, it's, we're very much kind of our customers are software development. Whereas, you know, if you're, if you're sitting in a product team, your customer really is the business. It should be. And so, yeah, that's kind of where we sit right now. Yeah. That makes sense as a, as a, as a shared service. I mean, is there governance around that or your shared service that sort of sells your services and, you know, if the business wants to go build an application in Azure and they do everything themselves, well then, you know, or, or is there, is there more of a governed uh, organizational approach. I think it's a lot more. It's a lot more covered. There's certainly opportunities to to improve and mature that governance. But yeah, it's, it's certainly not. We're certainly not in a place yet in which the business can go kind of deploy something into Azure, you know, at will. Now, certainly the business is critical and kind of pivotal in in helping us determine certain directions in, in terms of the services they either want to develop. Uh, or or mature, but you know they don't really play too much of a role uh, in the technology side of it, uh, and that's mostly handled on the IT side. You know it, it is handled in enterprise architecture, but you know that whole organization is is evolving. Really, cloud has changed. You know the introduction of cloud has really changed so many things and and pushed on so many teams to kind of change their their approach in terms of our own teams. We're still kind of in the process of evolving, a, you know, an engagement model, you know, that kind of helps teams understand how to interact with us. You know, the teams we have and the organization we have is only about uh, about 18 months old or so. And and, and last year, you know, in 2020, uh, I think it was just surviving and trying to figure out how to operate in the new reality we all faced. In, uh, and literally, the interesting thing is, you know, we, we had an org change and we kind of repositioned ourselves within the organization on March 1st of 2020, well, I think, you know, the, the, the big date everyone circles on the calendar, most of us, is March 13th of 2020 as the last day in the office. And so, right. so, we, were, so we were going through not only you know, the changes in the world around us, but, you know, huge change in the organization itself. So I think for us, all of last year, it was just, you know, what are we and, and, and what, what are we trying to become and, and how do we succeed and, and, and how's the company going to be successful given this new reality? And, and all those unanswered questions, right? And so luckily a lot of that stuff kind of got answered over time, but now we're just now getting to the point in which we can kind of think about the governance you referenced, uh, which is, you know, how do people interact with us? You know, how do we interact with them? How do they get help? How do, how do we help them? 
that sort of thing, a kind of standardizing process and making it easier and less confusing, if you will. Yeah, no, but but I think that's right. You know, I, regardless of the fact that, I mean, the pandemic should never have happened, but even without that, if you go governance first, then you don't know if it's right, you know? So, I mean, I, I think you need to start leaner and then and then build it up build it up where it's necessary. And and the reason I asked that question is we're seeing more and more of that starting to build up now. And and that might be in who's ultimately responsible for what, who, and, and by the way, the cloud vendors help support this as well. So, so you can have a bit of a separation of concern of who's allowed to do what. I don't just mean permissions for different types of things in cloud, but I mean, you know, provisioning networks in your account versus this account. And they're doing, they're, they're adding more and more controls to allow for that governance. But yeah, I think you're I think you're approaching it correctly. You know, it, so it, it sounds like the organization is well aware, both through your efforts and 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 the successes you're having, but just in general on you know the requirements for looking at things differently and changing processes. And at least I haven't heard that you sort of need to fight for organizational alignment and strategy around driving this way. It, it's you exist because of those strategies. Yeah, that's correct. And in fact, with the reorganization uh, that kind of created a team in the organization I'm part of, you know, was a result of, of, of a formal IT transformation effort that was initiated in 2019. It really kind of came to, I don't know if it came to a climax, it kind of began to uh, crest, if you will, early last year. And one thing I've learned is, is transformation is a continuous improvement process. You're never really finished. Uh, and I think our organization is learning that too, because you know that you know they they had a transformation project, they they wrapped it up, and, and then later they're like, wait a minute, we still have a lot of work to do. Uh, and I think now they're finally figuring out there's really not an end to transformation. It's always yeah. you know some place uh, on this on this journey, right? Yeah, well said, and I think that's a good thought to uh, to wrap up on. I mean. Yeah, this isn't a you know we just need to change this to this and then we're status quo again. You know this is the, and that's the power of it, right? Because now you can continually improve what you do, uh, both as new capabilities come out, as the business requirements change. I, I think I've said this a thousand times, but you know the ultimate goal of the business is they want you to meet their unpredictable demands at some predictable cost with reliability and security and and you know the same quality that they've expected before their requirements are just going to change way faster. You need to deal with it. And that's just going to continue to happen, you know, and it sounds like you're, you're really driving some, some excellence there. And I, I like also the fact that you sort of, it sounds like you're doing a bunch of reading too. And, and I'm always, I'm always like, you know, I, I read and I read and I read and books just like technology gets dated quickly. Sometimes books can get dated quite quickly, but you know, oftentimes, you know, the, the advice is the same advice as it was 20 years ago, you know, and, and, and as, as organizations like yours become more software driven, then there's best practices throughout the years that just simply apply, you know, and it sounds like yep. you're, you sort of uh, are expanding your knowledge base going forward too. So that's great. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We're always learning new things, you know, and, and we're always reading books constantly. And so that's, it's been a real journey for us, not just, uh, a technology journey, but a real kind of you know, transformation journey for the leaders as well that aren't necessarily, you know, hands on keyboard on the tech side. So it's been fun. Yeah, for sure. Matt, it was an absolute pleasure talking to you. I wish you the best and continued success and, uh, and thank you for joining. Awesome. It's great to be here. 